0: Anyway, we'll do whatever we need to. I think we got it. There we go. All right. Uh, we're in the midst of our uh, stewardship, uh, or st- uh, I guess uh, a series on stewardship, and uh, we're going to continue that series today. I want you to take your Bible, if you would, turn over to 1 Corinthians 4.2. Again, the uh, first day we talked about being stewards of the faith. The second week we talked about being stewards of God's finances. This week. I want to discuss and talk to you about being stewards of the family, of the family. And so we're going to note that. But let's begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Again, we're so glad that you have chosen to be a part of the service this morning. I trust that it will be a help and an encouragement to you as we move along today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 2. The Bible says, Moreover, it is required in stewards... That a man be found faithful. Wait a second. There it is. Okay. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. I kind of have it memorized. And when I quoted it, I was looking in verse 4 and thinking, that's not where I told them to turn. But it is in verse 2, as I had mentioned. I'm glad that it is there. God has seen fit to leave it, and I'm glad. So anyway, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Uh, We took that passage and we began to develop it a little bit through different areas of stewardship. But we began and we really tried to emphasize what a steward was to begin with. And we turned to 1 Chronicles 28. And because of time, let me read it. It says in verse 1, And David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, and the captains over the thousands and captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons with the officers and with the mighty men and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. We noted here from the passage that it talks about stewards being over all the substance and possession of the king. And so when it was all said and done, what we understand is that simply this, that stewards truly do not own anything of theirs, of their own. Everything that they do or that they have, is really the king's. It's his substance, it's his possessions that they oversee, that they care for, that they manage. And so we are simply stewards of God's possessions and God's substance. Now that goes against the grain, and often if we're not careful, we can kind of feel like, well, wait a second, that's mine. I have worked diligently, I have strived to possess these particular things whether they be finances or family or whether it just be our our faith even it's all because I have worked hard but in reality God has extended them to you and you become a steward of them your children are gods that he has given to you on loan you are simply stewards of them and our wives our husbands are given to us by God to care for and to to uh, manage and to deal with and to to share with and They're a blessing to us, but they are gods, and we need to be careful how we manage them, how we deal with them, how we oversee them, because in reality, they are simply gods, and we are stewards of them. Again, we're stewards over all the substance and possession of our King, our King Jesus. And so, when we stand before God one day at the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account for those things that have been entrusted into our watch care, whether they be our finances, our family, our faith, whether they be a a number of other things that we could truly identify today, we're going to give an account for those. We will be responsible for how we managed those things that God extended to us and shared with us. And so we as stewards will give an account. Now, again, as I mentioned, we already discussed the fact that we are stewards of the faith, and we talked about that at length. And then we talked about the fact... The fact that we are stewards of God's finances. And so today I want to begin and I want to address this issue. We are stewards of the family. Stewards of the family. Now, the reality is, is that every one of us is part of a family, some way, somehow. And in some cases that family is somewhat Disjointed. However, the reality is we're still part of a family. Or possibly you say, I don't really feel like I'm part of a family at this point. Maybe my family's all the way in California. I'm all the way up here. I have to function as an individual. I talk to them on the phone. I may visit them from time to time, but I just feel like I'm somewhat separated. That's fine. But even if that's the case, we understand that we still have a family somewhere, someone. Now, every one of us at some point Uh, Most people, not all, uh, the majority of people at some point will either be married or, uh, uh, or are married, usually, okay? There are those few that God has permitted to be single and allows to be single and gives them the privilege of being single so that they can devote their entire time, their focus, their energy on Him and His work, no doubt. And by the way, if you are single and seriously sick of it and would rather be married... I want you to understand that God does have a purpose and a plan for your life outside of marriage. It's not just by coincidence or chance. God wants you to take that time and develop your spiritual depth for Him. Sadly enough, we've been taught and told that if we don't have someone hanging on our arm or on our shoulder, we don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a wife or a husband, we don't have someone we call ours, then somehow we're not quite complete. That's not true at all in the Christian life. David said, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will lift me up. What he's saying is, even if my mom and dad turn their back on me, I'm complete because I have Jesus Christ. So none of us have an excuse to go off the deep end simply because maybe a relationship hasn't panned out the way we would like it to. Now, again, I I want to talk about being stewards of the family because it affects all of us very distinctly. And these points that I'm going to make today, there's simply three of them, may be perceived as being for only those that are married. That is not the case at all. If you're a young person here today, you will probably, most likely, be married at some point. And honestly, uh, you, you need to be prepared and ready for that relationship and how you're going to address it when you arrive there. Now, if you are married, these apply to you directly. If you're in a situation where you're divorced... Who's to say you won't be married at some point? Let's just be frank about it and honest. Life moves on. People make decisions. You're going to be probably back in a relationship at some point in the future. So let's just go ahead, begin now to understand what we need to do as being part of a family to honor Christ and to ultimately be a good steward of that family that God will permit us to be a part of. Now, let's go ahead and address these issues then this morning. And as we do, let's go to him first in prayer, and then we'll move forward. Father, thank you for this time together. Encourage us from your blessed book. Holy Spirit of God, I need your presence and power even now. Fill me with your spirit, Lord Jesus. I wish to be a blessing to your people. I wish only to bring them good. I want, Father, just for you to use me as your mouthpiece. May you speak to me and through me. And, Father, fill me with your spirit. And may you bless these thy people. May their hearts be stirred by your spirit. And may the Word of God truly uh, drive home its truth. And, Lord, may we accept and then embrace your truths and apply them to our lives. Again, Lord, we thank you for these that are gathered. Now, Lord, there may be those that have yet to even receive and accept your Son, Jesus, as their personal Savior. Before they leave today, I'm asking you, Lord, to speak to their heart. Reveal to them their need of forgiveness, their need of cleansing and the fact that you have provided them with that opportunity if they'll only accept and receive your Son as Savior and Lord. Now, God, do your perfect work in our imperfect lives. In Christ's name, amen. Number one, we're talking about being stewards of the family. Let me share, again, we're dealing with responsibilities. Our responsibility to portray a Christ-honoring life. As a steward of the family, I am responsible to portray... A Christ-honoring life. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Again, the passage is often applied to our testimony before the world, but how much more should it be applied to our closest family members? It's easy sometimes to fool the world. To put a smile on our face. To pretend to be something or someone we are not. But it is much more difficult to pull the wool over the eyes of the family. And yet the Bible says that we are to be a light in this world. And, and ultimately, they are to see, our, uh, see the Lord through our actions and our attitudes. Again, how much more important is it that I, as a father, as a husband, as a brother, as a sister, as an uncle, as an aunt... Not an aunt. As an uncle as possibly a a other type of family member, a nephew, or whatever it might be, how much more important is it that I represent Christ positively before those family members? I read a statement that caught my eye. It said, I would not give much for your religion unless it can be seen. Lamps do not talk, but they do shine. I like that. Lamps do not talk, but they do shine. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the mid to late 1800s, made this statement. He said a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When a man takes uh, when men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. That's true, isn't it? And by the way, I think that's fair. And you know what? That's fair in the home, too. It's an amazing thing how we want to talk the good talk, but in reality we fail to walk it. And then we somehow blame others for their opinion of us. Now hold on. Notice that it says, and I want you to see this for a second, it says, It says, um, the the statement made is this. I'll find it here in a second. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. Again, when men take stock in him. What he's talking about is when people in general view your life, how do they see you? I didn't ask how does that one critic view you. I didn't ask how does that one disgruntled ex-wife view you or ex-husband. And I'm talking about that one child that's gone wayward. I'm talking about how do men perceive you? How do people in general see you? How does your family perceive you in general? How's your wife, your children, your your other extended family, how do they perceive you? Are your words and your life matching up? Well, God intended that they do match up. In 1 Timothy, the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his so-called son in the faith, and by the way, he was his son in the faith. It says in 1 Timothy 1-2, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, he tells Timothy. So he does identify himself as Timothy's father in the faith. Timothy being his son. Again, Paul's not his natural father. But according to the scripture, Timothy's dad is likely lost. He's unsaved. The Bible tells us he's a Greek, which doesn't indicate that he's saved. That would mean more likely that he's a Gentile at that point, unsaved. Paul is Timothy's spiritual father, and as a spiritual father, he was responsible to set an example for Timothy, and Paul did just that in his life. For we read, if you would, take your Bible, turn over to Second Timothy 3:10, Second Timothy chapter three, verse 10. Notice Paul the Apostle. He makes these statements. And I I think that we all should be able to make this same statement here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul makes. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10. He says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, "...afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Again, thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions." You fully know, he says... He says, I have lived my life an open book. I've lived my life a, a, a glass house. I've allowed you to see everything firsthand. I've not tried to hide who I really was. I wanted you to see who and what I am. And that what I am is exactly what I say I am. I follow the very preaching and the teaching that I share with you. I invoke you to live a certain way and to be a certain example. But I seek to live that life and to exemplify that life in my own. He goes on later then, because he had that testimony, to be able to look Timothy in the eye in 1 Timothy 4.12 and say, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believer in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Because he had this foundation of faith and lifestyle. He was able to look Timothy in the eye and say, "Now listen, Timothy. You need to be the example of the believer. Now, you need to live up to that expectation. It is not an impossible task. It's not an impossible goal. It's quite—you are quite capable of fulfilling that requirement and that 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 request. And you know what? As parents and as family members, we are responsible to live a Christ-honoring life, a life that will enable." us to be an example of the grace and goodness of God Himself. Our testimony should inspire others, others in our family and others all around us to desire the Christ that we claim we love. Years ago, the communist government in China commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor with the express purpose of distorting some of the facts and representing him in a bad light. They wanted to discredit the name of his uh, and the consecration of this this very uh, of the missionary himself and the gospel that he believed. And so as the author was doing his research, he he was increasingly impressed by Taylor's saintly character and his his very godly godly life. And he found it very very difficult to carry out his assigned task with a very clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of losing his own life, He laid down his pen, renounced his atheism, and he received Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. Now, whether we realize it or not, our example is an impression on others. We can't get around that reality. You you may say today as a believer, well, I don't want people looking at my life. I remember years ago, Charles Barkley, the great basketball player, saying, I'm nobody's example. I don't want to be an example to nobody. Well, too bad you are. By reason of your position and your place and your prominence, you automatically are. And the truth is today, as believers, whether we want to receive or accept the responsibility or not, we are examples of something or someone. We can't get around it. And if we make the profession of faith, if we tell our family, if our family knows that we're children of God, then there is an expectation That they will assume for us. Now, we have such a responsibility because we will indeed affect their life as a result of our faith. We will leave impressions. Not only are we as stewards of the family to be responsible to portray a Christ-honoring life, but... We're responsible to pattern a Christ-honoring marriage. Speaking of marriage, I, I read that marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too warm, besides someone who's sleeping in a room that's too cold. <laughs> I'm not really sure about all that, but I do believe that there's little doubt that There's an all-out attack being waged against biblical marriage today. Marriage is defined in the Bible as one man and one woman. That union has been the stalwart or the very foundation of society throughout history. Where strong families flourished, strong nations existed. The opposite is also true. Where biblical marriage has been disdained, diluted and even discarded, the breakdown of the home ultimately affected the stability of the nation itself. Now America is flirting with disaster when they simply refer to marriage as a contract and not a covenant. See, the mentality today in our world is that when we get married and we say, I do, we are entering into a contract. A contract is basically something that says, I am responsible to provide you with said responsibilities or duties or, or a product or whatever it may be, uh, services. And you, on the other hand, are to provide me with said services or finances or what it might be. So, I give you something in lieu of the contract, you are to give me in something of lieu of the contract. If at some point one of us breaks the contract, we are no longer bound by the contract. That's how we're approaching marriage. And sadly enough, we're approaching it from that perspective even in the church. We look at marriage and say, I'm entering into a contract today. If you will be a good wife, I will be a good husband. If you will meet all my needs, I'll meet all your needs. If you will do your best to try to be this, 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 and this, then I'll do my best to be this, 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 and this. But if you don't, then I'm going elsewhere to look for those needs to be met. Because you break broke the contract, baby. That's how we're viewing marriage today. And because the world has seemed to somehow impress that upon people across the country. It's weaned its way and worked its way into the fabric of the church, and we too are viewing our marriages as simple contracts the way the world does. But the Bible says our marriages are covenants. When you enter into a covenant, you're making a solemn promise that is not to be broken. It is not based on someone else's performance. It's based upon your commitment and your word. And so when we as believers enter into the contract of marriage, we're saying, before God and you, my dear, I enter into this covenant. I make a covenant with God. I make a covenant with you, honey. You. Not the marriage. I make a covenant with a person. That I will love, honor, and cherish you until death do us part. That's a covenant. Again, it is not conditional based on based on our our performance. It's simply a covenant. Because we have somehow turned the marriage covenant into a marriage contract, and we've bought into that, America is headed on a route of disaster. But not only that, but they're headed, or flirting with disaster by educating our youth that Alternate lifestyles are not only acceptable, but also equally advantageous as biblical unions. As men and women who have entered into a biblical union, or those that will one day do so, we need to understand our responsibility to pattern a Christ-honoring marriage. There is nothing in this world that can replace God's picture and purpose for marriage. There's no relationship that can replace biblical union. There are always consequences when we exit God's perfect plan and enter into our own purposes. It is our responsibility to be stewards or should I say our responsibility, stewards of the family, is to pattern our marriages after a biblical standard. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, would you please? Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 21, <clears throat> submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. We, we often leave that one out. Let me tell you something. It takes two submitted. Amen. To one another in the fear of God. Then he goes on to say, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. That's like sandpaper today, isn't it? You know why? Because culture and society has dictated another reality. They say that's not truth. We have truth. And sadly enough, even believers have bought into those lies. There's nothing that is oppressive about God's perfect union. Nothing. The only thing oppressive about it is when there are people who are not submitted to His plan. And they are using that relationship for personal gain. Notice what he says here, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. By the way, he did that unconditionally. Right. Amen. Let me tell you something, ladies. You're not the easiest to get along with either. You know, it's always like, well, you'd expect me to submit to him. Well, he's got to love you no matter what. I mean, are you kidding me? We both got it on the chin sometimes. You understand where I'm going with this? We all act like it's one-sided. It's both sides. Everybody's supposed to act like Christ wants us to act. But by the way, that's the only way it works. And it starts with verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Outside of that, we got problems because there's all flesh in it. Now, notice what he goes on to say. He says, verse 26, talking about the husbands giving, himself, giving themselves for the church. The, he says, uh, I better go back. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, and that he that loveth his wife loveth himself. See, the relationship between husband and wife has a great significance, often much greater than most imagine. Marriage pictures the relationship between Christ and His church or His bride. And again, you have to understand once again that you and I as believers are part of that bride. How Jesus Christ relates to me is how I ought to relate to my wife. How God requires me to submit and surrender to Him, wives are expected to submit and surrender to husbands. You say, that's offensive to me. I know, because we're so carnally minded. We're so worldly in our outlook that we see things the way the world does and we define terms the way the world defines terms. Marriage is not a bad word. At least, if it's defined the way God defines it. And by the way, if it is not a biblical marriage or union, it is no marriage at all. I don't care what the state says. I don't care what the government says. God determines what marriage is. So we see that the way the husband loves his wife and gives himself for her is to be an example to all how the Lord Jesus Christ loves us. Those who have put their personal faith and trust in the Lord. So we're submitting ourselves we're surrendering ourselves we're being obedient and we're following after god's perfect picture his pattern for marriage and and in, and in, 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 as a steward of the family we we must understand our responsibility to pattern a christ honoring marriage before our kids and before our families that's a tremendous calling and by the way, that calling is no less than the pastoral calling. You say, well, you say, what? Well, wow, I'll tell you what, you, you, you really, God has called you to the ministry. Wow, you, that's very, very, uh, you know, individual. That's very important. That's, that's pretty, that's big time. Well, guess what? He's called you to pattern a Christ-honoring marriage. He's called me to do that. And by the way, he's called me to do that even before He ever called me to do this. I'm not qualified to do this unless I have performed that. How important and essential is a Christ-honoring marriage today in a culture that doesn't even know what marriage is? I don't know about you, but I don't need to look too far to see that our culture is producing an abundance of failed marriages. I mean, would we agree with that? I recently read about a study that was done a number of years ago, mind you. I think it was back in the mid-90s even. It identified the root cause or trouble uh, of of many failed marriages. I want to share that with you. Um... In order to uncover, the article says, the processes that destroy unions, marital researchers, study couples over the course of years, even decades, and retrace the star-crossed steps of those who have split up back to their wedding day, what they are discovering is unsettling, it says. A study that was conducted over decades revealed some unsettling results. None of the factors that one would guess might predict a couple's uh, durability actually does. Not how in love... A newlywed couple say they are how much affection they exchange, how much they fight, or what they fight about. In fact, couples who will endure and those who won't look remarkably similar in the early days. I think everybody's on board yet. We're all going, yeah, that makes sense. We we know what you mean. Everybody looks nice, and everybody seems pretty happy when they get married. He goes on to say, yet when psychologist Cliff Notorious of Catholic University and Howard Markman of the University of Denver studied newlyweds over the first decade of marriage, they found a very subtle but telling difference at the beginning of the relationships. By the way, this isn't a religious study, mind you. I'm just telling you a very practical fact. Among couples who would ultimately stay together, here it is now, five out of every 100 comments made about each other were put-downs. Now again, these are the ones that stayed together. Five out of every 100 comments made about each other were put-downs. Among couples who would later split, 10 of every 100 comments were insults. So we noticed five versus 10 comments being insults. And then they noted as they continued their study that the gap magnified over the following decade until couples heading downhill were flinging five times as many cruel and Invalidating comments at each other as happy couples. Quote, hostile put-downs act as cancerous cells that, if unchecked, erode the relationship over time, says Notarius, who, with Markman, co-authored the new book, We Can Work It Out. In the end, he goes on to say, relentless remitting, excuse me, relentless Unremitting negativity takes control and the couple can't get through a week without major blow-ups. Something as simple as put-downs. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 admonishes believers and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. How much more should we, as couples, forgive one another, be kind to one another, and be tender-hearted toward one another? See, as believers, we are to pattern a Christ honoring marriage. I read about a, a meeting at a woman's club in which the speaker was lecturing on marriage. During the course of her lecture, she asked the audience how many of the women wanted to mother their husbands. One member in the back. Uh, back of the the building and raised her hand. She looked at her and said, "You you you want to mother your husband?" She said, "Mother." I thought you said smother. <laughs> as humorous as the antidote may be. It may be that many wives and husbands tend to express this attitude either through their words or their deeds to their children. You don't have to say it to convey it. If you love your children, then you deeply desire to see them grow up healthy and happy. In an article written by Michael Webb, he addressed the most important aspect of healthy and happy growth in children at least from his perspective. He states, there are many good answers here, such as providing a comfortable home in a safe uh, neighborhood, making great sacrifices to help your children succeed in school, demonstrating unconditional love, setting consistent boundaries, modeling healthy values, and on and on. But he continues by saying, one of the most important factors too often, uh, that too often gets left out of the list that I believe is at the very top. It's loving your wife. You're two of the most important people in the world to your children. Probably the most important. How do you think your child feels when one parent yells at, belittles, taunts, or insults the other? I imagine they feel like I did when I, it was obvious my parents didn't love each other. I was torn, hurt angry, scared, and uncertain about my future. It is especially traumatic, he says, for children to see their mother, with whom that child has always had a special attachment, being hurt or neglected by their father. Too many dads con themselves into believing that the best way to invest in their children's future is to work long hours so they can live in a nicer neighborhood and send their children to better schools. In the process, they often end up jeopardizing the element that actually has the most impact on their child's life. The relationship between mom and dad. What a child's house looks like on the outside isn't nearly as important as what it feels like on the inside. Every child has a deep desire to see a committed, loving relationship between the two people he loves the most. He continues by saying expressions of love between a child's father and mother should not occur solely behind the bedroom door. It is vital for children to hear positive affirmations of their parents, love for one another. Uh, excuse me, positive affirmation of their parents, love for one another. It is equally critical or crucial to see the parents back up those words with deeds, showing that they really are special to each other. It's giving warm hugs and gentle kisses, lightly scratching backs or massaging shoulders, snuggling together while watching movies, buying gifts and, or making presents for each other just because talking with each other, and laughing out loud. Your children are likely to emulate you, he says. Emulate you when it comes time for them to find a spouse. They may mimic your affection and duplicate your, disre- or, and duplicate your disrespect. Most fathers would love to have a hand in choosing a mate for their children, he says. It's just ironic that they don't realize how much influence they already have. Hey, listen, as stewards of the family, we're responsible to pattern a Christ-honoring marriage. Number three, and I close. Our responsibility to produce a Christ-honoring seed. Amen. Talking about being stewards of the family. As we portray a Christ-honoring life, pattern a Christ-honoring marriage, we're well on our way to producing a Christ-honoring seed. Speaking of Abraham, the Lord made this statement. Genesis 18, 19, he said, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham Abraham, that which he has spoken of him. Speaking of Abraham again, he says, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment. Let me ask you today, as stewards of your family, can God say the same of you and I? There's no doubt that God knows us if we're his children. The Bible tells us over in the book of 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Still, can He say as He did about Abraham that we will command our children and our household for His glory? See, as the children of Israel made their way out of Egypt, as they prepared to occupy the promised land, God instructed them concerning the family. He outlines their responsibility as parents to instruct and ultimately instill the precepts that they themselves have received and to pass them off into the hearts of their offspring. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look there as we prepare to close. And I really am drawing nigh here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 9. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, this is the admonition that was given to the children of Israel concerning instructing and instilling their faith into their children's lives. And these words, verse 6, which I command you this day, shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as fauntlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house, and on thy gates. He goes on to say, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land that he sware unto thy uh, fathers, to Abraham, to, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. He says, listen, I'm I'm telling you to implant this faith, implant this word, this book in their hearts. I'm telling you to saturate their little hearts, their little minds, and their teenage hearts and minds with the word of God. You may not be able to ensure the decisions they make, but you can guarantee the information that they're given. You can't necessarily keep them from doing wrong, but you can certainly have them sit and hear the truth. I'm telling you today that often we are neglecting our responsibilities concerning our seed because we do not pass on our faith. And the Bible makes it very clear, it's simple, that the Word of God ought to be big in our homes. It ought to be big in our lives, yes, but big in our homes. See, the faith of the Israelites was not to be compartmentalized or capsulized. It wasn't to only be exercised certain days of the week, specific times of the day, but instead it was to be who they were, not just what they did. It was to be be their life. God wanted them to saturate the lives of their families and themselves with the Word of God. I know all the excuses. I'm raising teenagers and sadly enough I struggle just like you. I want them to turn out for God. I beg the Lord all the time, please Lord, be real in their lives. May they enjoy you, Lord. I don't want them just to do right. I want them to I want them to enjoy God. And if they'll enjoy God, they'll do right. I want it to be here not just here and here. Too many times we know this and we got this. We don't have it here. And I want Him to enjoy Him. I want Him to say that he, He's real to me and I love Him and I've experienced some victories in my life and God's not just the God of my parents. He's my God. That's what I'm desiring and that's what I'm striving for and that's what I'm longing for. I, I I don't know what the outcome will be 100% yet. I haven't been there. We'll see. We're trusting God. But what I do know is this. I am responsible as a steward of the family. I'm responsible to produce a Christ-honoring seed, and that will never happen if I don't abide by God's design. And it's to saturate the lives, the hearts, the minds of my children with Him and His Word that's each and every one of our responsibilities. The world may be going to hell, but our family and our families should be saved. The world may be shrouded in darkness and despair, but our family should be a beacon of hope. The Apostle Paul, as I closed my Bible when speaking to Timothy, addressed his faith. And he said this, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also. Somehow, some way, they did a good job, grandma and mama, of implanting Christ in the heart of that young man. And that's what I want. I want my kids to love God like I love God. I want my kids to, to ultimately... Want to spend time with God the way I want to spend time with God. I want them to love His Word and love His life as much as I do. I want them to say, I can't live without Him. That's what I want them to say. And I want them to mean it. I want to raise a godly seed. I'm still in the process of it all. Still working through it, just like you. And I'm learning every day that it never ends. The order we get, we're still always trying to instill truth into our kids and be an encouragement to them. Even those that have graduated and even those that move on into marriage, we're still always trying to implant these truths and encourage them in the things of God. And we're always praying and begging God to keep them on the straight and narrow. It can be overwhelming if we leave God out of the equation. Praise God there's victory in Him. So today, as we consider being stewards of the family, may we continue to portray a Christ-honoring life, to pattern a Christ-honoring marriage, and to produce a Christ-honoring seed, to do our best, filled with the Spirit, to accomplish God's purpose for our lives as believers. Today, you might be saved. Maybe you're not. Today, you may know Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you don't. Those are one and the same. To know Him, to receive Him, to accept Him, to believe in Him. That all means the same thing. Jesus Christ is either your Lord and Savior. He's either seated on the throne of your life or you have yet to invite Him into your life. You've failed to ask Him to forgive you, to save you, and to take you to heaven. I want you to know today that the Lord Jesus Christ is anxious to forgive your sin and to give to you righteousness, His righteousness, and to give to you an eternal home, and to include you in an eternal family. He wants to forgive and save you today, but you have to ask Him. Will you? Father, we come to You. We thank You for this time we've had together. And Lord, such a very sensitive topic as we talk about the family. And yet, Lord, Your Word does spell things out for us. Sometimes we have questions, no doubt, but Lord, for sure we are always to be seeking and striving to understand and to know your truths, that we may apply them in our lives. Thank you for the simple truths that we learned today, stewards of the family. Now, Father, if there's anyone in this room that's lost today without Christ, may you save them today. Every head bowed, every eye closed, you'd say, Preacher, I can't honestly say that if I died, I know for sure heaven would be my home. I can't say for sure that I remember a time and place when I invited the Lord Jesus to come into my heart, my life as my Savior. Would you be so bold, so honest to simply raise your hand and let me pray for you and say, That's me, preacher. I don't have that settled today. I can't honestly admit or say that I have it settled, that I know for sure heaven's my home. Will you let me pray for you? Let me pray for you. Just slip your hand up quickly. Let me pray for you. Put it down. Slip it up. Put it down. You're a child of God then. What about that pattern of Christ-honoring living? That portrait, I mean, of Christ-honoring living. That pattern of a Christ-honoring marriage. What about that product of a Christ-honoring seed? Hey, let God do something in your life today. Let Him change the course of your life and the direction of your family through your life and your decisions today. Father, bless us now in these next moments. May you work in lives, do your perfect work. In Jesus' name, amen.